Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, in our Thursday, Friday Exodus series. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. The Jewish people would, through their Egypt experience, learn an important truth. When the leadership changed in Egypt and a new ruler arose that knew not Joseph, when the mood of the Egyptian people turned from being for the Jewish people to being against the Jewish people, when their high life in Egypt turned to a low life in Egypt, then all the Jewish people would begin to question, is all this really good for us? I mean, after all, what good could possibly come from this? That would be the time when the Jewish people would have to go back and rely on nothing else but God's words to his friend Abraham, the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that he would build them into a large and prosperous people. Same with us. When our lives take a turn for the worse and we have to move from living on Highland Avenue to living on Lowland Avenue, when our health fails, when the economy just eats up all of our finances and savings, when we find ourselves having to scale down from Highland Avenue to Lowland Avenue, that's a time when we also have to rely on nothing else than our knowledge of God. We have to remember the Lord Jesus Christ as Jehovah said to the Jewish people the words in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, when he said, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all of your heart, 100% of your heart. Those are the times when we remember that the verse says that God knows the thoughts that he thinks toward us. We might not know all the details, but we rely on his words. His words are, that he knows the thoughts that he's thinking toward us. Those are the times when we rely on the fact that he said in that word, I know the thoughts that I'm thinking toward you. He's saying, I'm thinking of you. And we marvel with that. We step back and we say, he said he's thinking of us. That will be the time when we'll turn from our distress and our trouble and we'll turn to praise him and thank him for just the simple words, the simple thought. I know the thoughts that I think toward you. That's a time when we'll come out of a cloud of our problems and a cloud of our troubles. As we come out of that, we'll become lost in the sunshine of the wonder of the truth that God is thinking of us. And And we come out of our distress, we come out of our trouble, and we'll say the words with Job, that he said in Job 7.17, What is man that thou shouldst magnify him, and that thou shouldst set thine heart upon him? 
See, coming out of that cloud of self-consumption, we'll get lost in the wonder that God has set his heart on us. That's a wonder. God has set his heart on us. And we muse, we'll muse on the idea of God, the great God, like he said, I am God, the great God of the universe, choosing to set his heart on us. Those are the times when, like the Jewish people, those are the times when we will repeat the words of David, king of Israel, when he said in Psalm 8, 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Coming out of our worries over to look at our future and what will happen to us will come into a delightful distraction. A delightful distraction from our troubles and our worries with the words, God is mindful of me. As David said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Well, think, God has chosen to fill his mind with me. And as we think of that, our problems and our troubles just get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer as we think, God's mindful, God's mindful, God's mindful. And those are the times when we'll think back on how Moses came to the Jewish people in their distress in Egypt, and we'll say, that time was when God visited them. That's what David said, thou visitest. And we'll think of David's words, thou visitest him. And we'll muse on the word visit as a description for the times when we spend alone with God. Quiet times. And Japanese have this great custom, great thing that they do. That when you go over to a a home of a Japanese family as their guests, and you leave their home, they will turn to you and say, thank you for your visit. Thank you for your visit. And these are the times when we're so distressed During our great distress, when God speaks to us in his word in our quiet times, and before we get up from that reading, we'll say like the Japanese, God, thank you for your visit. Thank you for your visit. And those are the times when we will read Psalm 144, verse 3. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man that thou makest account of him? And we'll grab those words. Take us knowledge of man. Take us knowledge of him. We'll think of ourselves like a person helpless, being swept down in a wild river. But God comes to our rescue and he pulls us out. And as he did, we think God made the decision to take knowledge of us. And thinking back to Jeremiah 29, 11, we'll remember God said that his thoughts toward us are thoughts of peace, not evil to give us an expected end. And just like the Jewish people in Egypt, they had a lot of evil, a lot of trouble in their lives. And it just didn't look like God had planned a safe arrival of peace as their expected end. And we we have so much trouble and calamity in our lives. It doesn't look like God has planned for us a safe arrival of peace as our expected end. But what is the expected end? Jeremiah 29, 12 through 13, the next verses say, After he said, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, 
to give you an expected end. Then he says, then shall you call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart as it was for the Jewish people. It took an earthquake in their souls. An earthquake in their souls. For what? For them to turn to God. An earthquake in their souls in Egypt that caused them to turn from themselves to God. An earthquake in their souls in Egypt to turn them from calling out to each other in their trouble to calling on God, to praying to him with all their heart. But when they did turn their heart to seek God, search for him with all their heart, they found him. They found the Lord Jesus Christ, known to them at that time as Jehovah, at that time. When we study the Jewish people in Exodus, we don't say, what's wrong with them anyway? We see ourselves in them. We see ourselves in them. Like someone has said, the Jewish people are just like everybody else, only more so. We see ourselves in them, just like with them, it took with us an earthquake in our souls called the consequences of our sin to turn us from ourselves to God, to turn us from calling out to each other in our trouble, to calling on God, to praying to him. But when we did turn our hearts to God, to seek God, to search for him with all of our heart, we found him. We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did speak. We found him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, as part of the one body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one church of the Lord Jesus Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles ever since Adam, the one church body of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll all say, as we look back on our individual lives on earth, that now we can say the words of Romans 8.28, we know. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. But there's one lesson that the Jewish people had to learn before they could leave Egypt, and that lesson had to do with their self-estimation. They, heaven will not be heaven until each one of us gets cut down to the right size, and that's called humiliation or humility. That was the hardest lesson for the Jewish people to learn. And Moses worked with the Jewish people to help them to learn how to see themselves. And we need to also learn how to see ourselves. How should the Jewish people see themselves? Should they see themselves as the people of great achievements? Should they see themselves as the people of Nobel Prize winners like Albert Einstein? Should they see themselves as the people of great musicians like Felix Mendelssohn and Vladimir Horowitz? Should they see themselves as the people of great composers like Irving Berlin and George Gershwin? Is that how they should view themselves? Is that the image that they should have of themselves? Great achievements, Moses said, and taught them, turn from all that. Turn from all that and say about yourselves, and he wrote the words they should rehearse to say in Deuteronomy 26, 5. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. Moses said, you should see yourself as a Syrian ready to perish. And what happened? 
Solomon said it in 1 Chronicles 17, 21. What one nation in the earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his own people, to make thee a name of greatness and terribleness by driving out nations from before thy people whom thou hast redeemed out of Egypt. What's the lesson? A Syrian ready to perish, redeemed by God, blessed by God. But never forget, Moses was teaching them, a Syrian ready to perish. So for ourselves as well. Never forget your beginnings. How did the Jewish people start out? A Syrian ready to perish. Job 8, 7. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end shall greatly increase. Why will the latter end greatly increase? The blessing of God that maketh rich. Now, when we come in Exodus 1 here to the first five verses, in keeping with the idea of the small beginnings, we read of the small beginnings when the Jewish people came into Egypt because we read here their individual names. That's what it says in Exodus 1, 1 through 5. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man, that's an important word, every Every man and his household came with Jacob. And then we read the names. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. For Joseph was in Egypt already. As you read those names, it's like you say, there they are. There they all are. There's the list, one by one by one by one, of all the Jewish people that came into Egypt. Maybe there were Bedouins in the desert, and they saw this small, straggly group, half-starved men walking into Egypt, half-starved families walking into Egypt. And if you were there, they might say to you, this is going to be a great nation. No, they're so small. But what does God say? What does God say in situations like that? He says, Zechariah 4.10, Who hath despised the day of small things? That was a day. When the Jewish people walked into Egypt, that was the day they walked into Egypt. That was a day of small things. And people would say, look at them, just a few people starving to death. This really is a day of small things. And God says, yes, it is. It's a day of small things, but don't despise it. Why? Because when God's involved, small things will become great things. That's a lesson for us. We look at ourselves and we say, we're nothing. We're, yes, we are. We're nothing. But if God's involved, small things become great things. So don't despise. Why? Because God's involved. But God would take them as small as they were and build something great. And so God says the same thing to us. Don't despise the day of small things. Why would God choose to put every person's name who came into Egypt here? Why would he choose that? It's as though God is keeping a careful record. God is keeping track of each and every one. Each and every one. That's an important phrase. Each and every one. It says every. Each and every one. It is as though God is saying, where's Reuben? Oh, there he is. I would not rest until I found Reuben. 
and made sure that he was in the company who came into Egypt. Where's Simeon? Oh, there's Simeon. I know Simeon. I missed Simeon. I was worried for Simeon. But there's Simeon. I can rest now because Simeon has been accounted for. That picture of God keeping track of each and every one is an important picture of God. And that's exactly what he meant when the Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke 15, 4 through 7, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he lose one of them, that's important. If he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, as in the one, he layeth it, as in the one, on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he called together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say unto you, likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Let me read that again. Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine persons just persons which need no repentance. The emphasis here is on the number one. He said in verse four, the shepherd would go crazy over one lost sheep until he found it. He said this shepherd would set himself to find that one lost sheep and he wouldn't rest until he found that one lost sheep. And he said in verse five that when the shepherd found that one lost sheep, that it would be so important to him that he would lay that one lost sheep on his shoulders to make sure that that one lost sheep got back to safety. And he said that when he got home, that with that one lost sheep, that it wouldn't be a secret that he found it, but that he would call a big party, a great celebration over that one lost sheep. And what would be the theme of the party? What would be the theme of the great celebration? That the shepherd had found that one lost sheep that was lost. And then the master, the master turned and he said, that is a valuable similarity of the shepherd with the one lost sheep. He said, that's a teaching analogy over the fact that there's going to be joy in heaven over one lost sinner that repenteth. And the shepherd finding his sheep is like the Lord Jesus Christ finding that one lost soul that he created, that he loves. And that one single solitary sheep, when it was found, that one single solitary sinner, when it's found, and repents and comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a great rejoicing. See, it's all about the one single solitary soul that's saved. So here, as the small band of all the Jewish people stumble their way into Egypt, God is counting them off one by one, each and every one because he knows each and every one. And as each one comes in, you can picture the Lord Jesus Christ as Jehovah, looking at each one and smiling as he realizes he hasn't lost any. That's exactly what he said in John 6, 38 through 40, when he said, for I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. 
but should raise it up, as in one, again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one would see it the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He said that he did not come from heaven to do his own will. He came from heaven to do the will of him that sent him. That'd be God the Father. And he made it very clear what the will of God the Father was who had sent him. And that will is that of all which he had given him, he should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. His will was all about the all, as in each and every one of the all. His will was that the Lord Jesus Christ should not lose one, but raise each and every one up at the last day. His will was all about that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. His will was all about the each and every one. His will was all about the single solitary him that he should raise up at the last day. And though there were more than one that came into Egypt, each one is named off in our first five verses here. Because when he focuses on one, he focuses on one, only him for that moment, and saying to himself, each and every solitary one has been brought into Egypt, and I haven't lost any. And each Christian who has called on his name, it's a personal issue with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a personal issue with him that each and every single solitary Christian will be brought into heaven. That's the kind of Lord that he is. It's just so personal with the Lord Jesus Christ that it's all about his personal hand. That's the part of the body that he chose to use when he talks about the each and every one. And when he said in John 10, 28 through 29, he put it this way, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which, which is greater, my Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. He said that this was so much the issue with him of not losing one, of not losing anyone, so that each and every one would be saved. He said he has a tight grip on each and every one, or as has been said by another, we are in his grip. And as far as losing one, he said that he has prepared himself for the pluckers. And a plucker is a person who tries to quickly grab out of the hand, you know, like a, like a purse snatcher. And those are those that wait for when you're not looking and quickly grab and run. And the Lord Jesus Christ said he was ready for the pluckers. And the pluckers who would come with a false doctrine, inserting it into a Christian's mind, he said, that plucker cannot pluck them out of my hand. The plucker who would come with some sexual temptations and immorality, he said, the plucker cannot pluck them out of my hand. The plucker who would come with a flood of discouragements and despair, he said he's prepared for that plucker. And those pluckers will not be able to pluck them out of his hand. And then the Lord Jesus Christ said he was not the only one ready to protect Christians from the pluckers. His was not the only hand that was holding Christians. He said his father, God the father, his hand, is also holding believers 
And he is also prepared for the pluckers. And it is as if God the Father and God the Son are saying, as for the pluckers, bring them on. Bring them on. We're ready for them. We will work hard. And when it's all finished, everyone will see that no one was able to pluck any believer out of these two mighty hands. The mighty hand of God the Son and the mighty hand of God the Father. And that's seen for us in the naming of each and every one of the Jewish people who came into Egypt in Exodus 1 through 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mighty hand. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your mighty hand that holds us and holds us and has prepared for those who would come to pluck us out and has said, no way, no way over my dead body. This will not happen because you have, Lord, such a care as you did for the Jewish people who came in to the land of Egypt. We pray, Lord, that in our hearts we would say, no spirit of Lot's wife for me. Oh, no. Lord, I'm your student. You're my teacher. Teach me, Lord. Teach me so that I see clearly the hostility of the world against you, against me. Help me, Lord, so that I get trained to not desire anything in this world, but that, Lord, I fix myself in devotion to you with ropes of love and gratitude for your deliverance. Thank you for hearing our prayers today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If we can get you any books, materials, or information, please call us at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Go to friendshipwithgod.org or israelrestoration.org. We'll see you next week.